American Majority. Days of Revolution is a podcast series brought to you by AmericanMajority.org. This is Ned Ryan, and welcome to Episode 3, The Last of the 13 Colonies. In my previous podcast, I discussed the settling of the early colonies, from Virginia to New York and Connecticut. In this podcast, I want to cover the settlement of the rest of the colonies and their early history. In 1636, the Puritans of Massachusetts helped found another colony, Rhode Island, and Providence Plantation, by forcing Roger Williams out of Massachusetts. Williams had landed in Boston in 1631 and had been welcomed with open arms. But in October of 1635, Williams was tried by the General Court of Massachusetts and convicted of sedition and heresy. The court declared that he was spreading diverse, new, and dangerous opinions which means he was preaching things that the Puritans didn't like. And so he was ordered to be banished. In an ironic footnote, the order to banish Williams was on the books until 1936, when Bill 488 was passed by the Massachusetts House and his banishment was lifted roughly 250 years after Williams had died. But I digress. After he was ordered banished, the general court delayed the enforcement of the order because Williams was ill and winter was approaching. So on one condition, Williams was allowed to stay. He must stop agitating. But as is the case of all natural agitators, Williams did not cease. So in January of 1636, the sheriff came to pick him up, only to realize that Williams had slipped away three days before. Amazingly, Williams walked through the deep snow of a hard winter, 105 miles from Salem to the head of the Narragansett Bay, where he was rescued by his friends, the Wampanoag Indians, and taken to the winter camp of their chief sachem, Massasoit. Yes, that's the same guy who helped the pilgrims some 16 years before. In the spring of 1636, Williams and a number of his followers from Salem began a settlement on land that Williams had bought from Massasoit, only to be told by the Puritans in Plymouth that he was still within their land grant, and that if he insisted on staying there, they might be forced to extradite him to Massachusetts. They strongly invited him, quote-unquote, to get out of their territory, and we won't bother you anymore. So Williams and his small band of outcasts rode over to Narragansett territory, and having secured land from Kenokius and Minotonomy, chief sachems of the Narragansett Indians, Williams established a settlement with 12 loving friends, and he called it Providence, because he felt that God's providence had brought him to this place, and thus the colony of Rhode Island and Providence Plantation was begun. Delaware would be founded two years later, in 1638, by Peter Minuit. Yes, the same Peter Minuit, who had bought New York from the Indians for essentially $24, but who was now working for the Swedes and the new Sweden Company. The Dutch had actually made an attempt to settle Delaware some seven years previous, but the 40 Dutch settlers had gotten into a rather foolish argument with the local Indians, who had promptly massacred them to the last man in 1632. Minuit and the Swedes would land early in 1638 and build a fort near what is now today Wilmington. And in a random bit of history, it was the Swedes who brought the log cabin design to America. So all those log cabins on the American frontier are not exactly native to America, but actually originated in Sweden. Over the course of the next few years, the Swedes expanded their control over the territory. But Delaware quickly became a battleground between the Dutch and the Swedes until Peter Stuyvesant the governor of New Amsterdam, which is of course now New York City, decided in the mid-1650s to lay down the law with the Swedes, and he sailed into Delaware Bay 
with a fleet bearing over 600 men. The Swedes, badly outnumbered, promptly threw up the white flag, and New Sweden came under Dutch control. Until, of course, the British took over New Amsterdam in 1664, and the Duke of York took control of all the Dutch holdings, and yes, the Duke of York is why we now have New York City. The Dutch briefly won back control of Delaware, but the English finally gave them the boot in 1674, and in 1682, the Duke sold Delaware to William Penn, who annexed it to Pennsylvania. By 1704, however, Delaware elected its own legislature and became a self-governing colony. It would be another 15 years before another colony was settled. In 1653, English settlers moved south from Virginia into what is now North Carolina, really to create a buffer on the southern frontier of Virginia. Of course, North Carolina's outer banks were where Sir Walter Raleigh's failed colonization attempts had taken place some 70 years before. The story of North Carolina, however, can't quite be told without the history of South Carolina, which is actually the site of the first European settlement in North America. San Miguel de Guadalupe, near modern-day Georgetown, South Carolina, was settled in 1526 by Spanish settlers. A slave revolt and a deadly fever that killed many of the settlers forced the Spanish to relocate into what is now Georgia. In 1663, the English took a crack at founding the Carolinas when King Charles II granted eight English nobles a charter to settle the land south of Virginia. These men, known as the Lords Proprietary of Carolina, the Duke of Albemarle, the Earl of Clarendon, Lord John Berkeley, the Earl of Craven, Sir George Carteret, Sir William Berkeley, Sir John Colton, and the Earl of Shaftesbury, began settling the land south of Virginia, which is roughly today's North Carolina, South Carolina, and Georgia. They named their territory Carolina in honor of King Charles I. But the charter granted to the Lord's Proprietary of Carolina was challenged by the Virginians, who'd settled Albemarle Sound and did not want to be included in the Carolina Charter. It would lead to tensions for the next 30 years until the English crown recognized the Northern Carolina region of Albemarle as its own region and referred to it as North Carolina. Charleston, then known as Charlestown after King Charles, would be settled in 1670 by 200 English settlers from Barbados, and South Carolina would eventually become a royal colony in 1719. In 1681, William Penn would receive a large tract of land in the New World, in part to repay a debt owed his family, but there were other reasons as well. Penn, who'd converted to the Society of Friends or Quakers as a young man, was a famous defender of religious freedom and liberty in England, who could attract several thousand people for a public talk. He traveled in Germany and Holland to see how Quakers there were faring, and was strongly impressed by the religious toleration in Holland. It was a commercial center where people cared mainly about peaceful cooperation, and even persecuted Jews and other Protestants flocked to Holland. What he observed in Holland planted the seeds and pen of the idea of a colony or community based in freedom and toleration. Determined to push for religious freedom in England, Penn sought and received the blessing of King Charles II and the Duke of York, of course later James II, and Penn presented his case for religious toleration before Parliament, but Parliament would have none of it. So in 1677, Penn and a conglomerate of other wealthy Quakers purchased half, half the colony of New Jersey from Lord Berkeley and West Jersey was formed as a haven in the New World for Quakers. But Penn wanted more than just a toehold, so he went to King Charles II with a proposition, 
a new colony in America for the Quakers and other religious dissenters that would relieve some of the growing tensions in England. According to traditional accounts, the Crown also owed the Penn family £16,000. In return for the land, the debt to the Penns would be forgiven. King Charles II proved very open to Penn's idea, not only because it made political sense and probably financial sense, but also because there was a long-time relationship between Charles II and the Penn family. Over 20 years before, just after Cromwell's death, Admiral Penn, William's father, had been sent on a secret mission to bring the then Prince Charles back to England to restore the throne and push the Puritans out of power. For his role in restoring the crown, Admiral Penn was made the Commissioner of the Navy, which, as you can imagine, was a very powerful position. Now, James, the Duke of York and the future James II, actually owned the land that Charles II wanted to give to William. But James acquiesced because that's what you do when you have more land than you know what to do with, and your brother, the king, asked politely for you to hand over the land to pay the crown's debt. And at the time, the 45,000 square mile piece of land made William Penn the largest private landowner in the world. Penn proposed the name New Wales and then Sylvania for the piece of land, but Charles II proposed Pennsylvania in remembrance of William's father, and that was the name given to the new colony. Before sailing for the New World in 1682, Penn wrote the first frame of government for Pennsylvania, which was to become the Constitution for Pennsylvania. The document, which stated that men being born with a title to perfect freedom and uncontrolled enjoyment of all the rights and privileges of the law of nature, no one can be put out of his estate and subjected to the political view of another without his consent, and granted such rights as secure private property, virtually unlimited free enterprise, a free press, trial by jury, and of course, religious toleration. And nearly a hundred years later, such ideas and themes would find their way into our Declaration of Independence. For Penn, religious freedom was absolute in Pennsylvania, and the rights of Englishmen were to be carefully guarded. He even insisted that the people be given the right to have a representative legislature, and the first frame was a first constitution that allowed for peaceful change through an amendment process whereby the document could be amended by the consent of the governor and 85% of the elected officials. In an ironic footnote, Penn was never able to collect enough dues and rents to pay for the management of the colony. He'd been owed 16,000 pounds by the crown and had accepted, according to most accounts, the colony as payment for a debt owed to his family. But in the end, the management of Pennsylvania would cost Penn over 30,000 pounds. In 1733, the last of the original 13 colonies, Georgia, was founded by James Oglethorpe, who was one of King George II's generals and at one point a member of parliament. The colony's corporate charter was actually granted on the 9th of June, 1732, to Oglethorpe by George II, for whom the colony was named. Oglethorpe's vision for the colony was a place for the resettlement of English debtors and the worthy poor, although no debtors or convicts were part of the organized settlement of Georgia. That's the irony of the story. Most think Georgia was founded as a place for debtors. That was Oglethorpe's original vision, a colony for the relief of the poor, unemployed, and persecuted Protestants. Though he was responsible for prison reform and the release of thousands of imprisoned debtors in 1728 and 29, the idea that Oglethorpe sent those debtors to Georgia is unfounded. By 1732, Oglethorpe was far more concerned with the protection of the colonies north of Georgia, so the driving motivation for the settlement of Georgia was to have a buffer state or border, or garrison province, 
that would defend the southern part of the British colonies from the Spanish in Florida. Oglethorpe imagined a province populated by sturdy farmers that would guard the border, and because of this, the colony's charter prohibited slavery. On November 17, 1732, the ship Anne carried Oglethorpe and the first colonists to Georgia. It actually reached Charleston, South Carolina on the 13th of January, 1733, and a month later, on February 12, 1733, those settlers moved south to Yamacraw Bluff in Georgia, and that is why February 12th is known as Georgia Day. When war broke out in 1739 between England and Spain, Oglethorpe's plans for Georgia as a defense and buffer for the northern colonies was successful. He, however, was unsuccessful in his bid to capture Florida, and in 1743, he sailed back to England, never to return to Georgia. The irony of Georgia is that most of the early settlers left Georgia and either returned to England or migrated north to South Carolina, leaving Georgia as one of the smallest of the original 13 colonies. Now, by the time of the Revolutionary War, some of the colonies, like Virginia and Massachusetts, had been in existence for 150 years or more. They were well-established, thriving colonies that had been self-governing for generations. 3,000 miles away from England, those who'd settled the Northern American colonies had not only created a life different from the other English in the Old World, but they'd learned to govern themselves. And this is one of the real rubs in the 1760s when Parliament attempts to heavy-handedly assert itself in the governing of the colonies. The response of the colonies was, we've been doing just fine the past 100-plus years governing ourselves. And now the question was, who was going to actually govern and tax the American colonies? The duly elected state legislatures, or Parliament and the British Crown. Join me next week as I discuss the colonial legislatures and the self-governing colonies. Days of Revolution is a podcast series brought to you by AmericanMajority.org and is a podcast series written by Ned Ryan and Eric Josephson and recorded by Ned Ryan. If you enjoy this podcast on American history, be sure to check out the History of the Constitutional Convention by Ned Ryan at AmericanMajority.org or on iTunes.